All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're making our way through the epistle. And we're going to talk about a couple of issues that are very relevant to both of us. Last week we talked about sexual immorality. And that, of course, is very relevant in our society today. I mean, everybody is affected by that, whether you realize it or not. Today we're going to talk about it, and this affects everybody as well, too, the whole legal issue. And specifically, Paul's talking about suing other people, other Christians, not other people, but suing other Christians. And then he's going to talk some more about the issue of sexuality, so sexual matters. So we're going to talk about that today. So we're in chapter 6. Let's look at the first 11 verses. This first section deals with the issue of legal matters. So let's look at what the Apostle says here. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brother but the brother goes to the law against brother, and therefore before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren." Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our Lord. Okay, what we're going to talk about here is the whole issue of suing somebody who is another Christian. So let me just give you some thoughts real quick before we look at the verse. Let me tell you some extremes that have happened with this section in our churches over the years. There have been extremes where people have taken these verses to mean that you can't sue anybody. So you'll find Christians who'll say, well, better not to sue anyone. It's not saying that. It's saying specifically who you're not to sue and why you should not sue and what to do in that matter. So it's not an issue that you can't sue. All right? Everybody understand me? All right. It's only talking about civil matters. That's the second thing I want to tell you. Because I've seen this extreme where maybe somebody in the church has done something that's criminal. You say, what do you mean? Well, I've seen in a situation, situations where maybe somebody has molested a child. 
or done something that is criminal behavior. And the church then has decided that we shouldn't take him to court, and they use this passage as the basis for that. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. That is really stretching this verse way out of context. Because this has to do with two people being in disagreement over some civil matter and going to the court to decide the matter. This passage does not talk about criminal behavior. Does everybody understand me? In fact, let me just go ahead and say this. In fact, there is more evidence in the Bible, in the Scriptures especially, that the responsibility to punish and to deal with criminal behavior falls on who? Who does it fall on? The church? No, who? Government. Paul will tell you later in Romans and in other passages that it is the job of government to punish what? Evildoers. You understand? To punish criminal behavior. So, maybe you've been there where you have heard this, that we should, we should just deal with it internally and not deal with it. If it's a criminal thing, my friends, you don't have a biblical mandate to take care of that. Does everybody understand me? If it's criminal activity, it should only be handled by who? The law. You're, it's not for you to do that. And so for years, and we're seeing the fruit of that now, for years, we quietly didn't do anything about it and the people were never dealt with. All because we claimed this first. Now, let me ask you something. If you're somebody who's been affected by somebody criminally, and the group of people that you hang out with as a church decide, well, we can't do something about this because the Bible tells us that. What, what's going to happen to your perception of God in the Bible? Anybody? Huh? You would think it's unjust. You would, what's that? Yeah, you would think God is unjust. Like God really failed on this one because what's our tendency in a church when we have somebody sin? Let's be honest. What's our tendency? We're called to what? Forgive. But we do things in the extreme when we're called to forgive. What do we normally do, especially when somebody has criminal behavior? We kind of what? Our tendency is to forgive and also to what? Sweep it under the carpet and then just forget about it. But I'm telling you, with criminal behavior, when things like, let's say, molestation, you can't cover that up. The damage is far more. No church can handle that. No church can handle that. Do you understand? No church can handle that kind of behavior. That's behavior that has to be handled by authorities. And I'll be honest with you. Pastor George is a mandated reporter. What's that? Okay. No, but what I am is, is I'm a mandated reporter. If I find out about it, i got to tell the authorities. I don't have a choice. It's the law. So we can't use these verses to justify things, to say, go to one extreme and say, we can't sue anybody. And then the other extreme is, well, we should handle it all in the church. So you say, well, then what do these verses say? Well, let's look what they say then. First of all, I want you to notice... Paul, in verse 1, is raising the question about lawsuits. He says this, Paul questions the validity of taking a brother before the courts. Paul, See, here's the issue. The issue isn't you suing. The issue is who you're suing. 
Does everybody understand me? The issue isn't suing, it's who you're suing. And Paul is saying that it is, it is not valid for a believer to sue another believer. Now you say, well, then they just get off scot-free. And I, nobody, I, wait a minute now, he says there's a way of handling it. We're going to talk about it here in a moment. So it's not valid to sue another believer. Now here's what he says. Here's the role of believers now. Paul describes our future role as judges in the kingdom of God. So here's what he's saying. Guys, don't you realize that in the future, in the kingdom of God, when you go to be with the Lord, we get get so influenced by Hollywood. Most of us, you know, maybe you're thinking about you're going to be floating on a cloud and strumming on David's harp, you know, watching St. Peter at the gate. Forget it. You're not going to do that. You're going to have responsibility. The Bible talks very clearly that, you know, it's just not like... Because some people say that would be pretty boring. It's not going to be boring. You're going to have responsibilities. You're going to be serving the Lord. And one of the things he says is that, the Bible describes it this way, you are going to be co-rulers with him, and you're going to be judges. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't you guys realize you're going to the courts to settle stuff, and in the future you've got a role as a judge? What's the matter? With that picture. Okay? So then notice now he talks about their folly. Here's their folly. First of all, verse 4, he says, Paul questions why they would then go to the lost to settle their disputes. Why would you go to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't have a complete understanding to settle your dispute. Hey, let me just stop for a moment. You know, as a pastor, I get to witness things in people's lives all the time. And as I'm getting older, I'm witnessing more and more. And the thing I've witnessed about courts, and I've been, I've been in courtrooms, everybody loses. You ever notice that? Everybody but a few loses. You say, lose a few. Well, I remember, I, it was a criminal thing. It was in, in Canada. I had a guy. He was in, you know, he was arrested for something, and I went to his court hearing. And, and in Canada, it's a little bit different. You know, in, in, in the United States, the defendant sits at the table with his lawyer. In Canada, they got a box. They stick him up on the side, and it's like, you know, glassed in. It's kind of like a criminal box, and they stick him up in there. So he's up in there. His lawyer's down here. The, the, the prosecuting lawyer's over here. The judge is there, and they're just going at it, and they're hammering each other, and you would think that they don't like each other. Okay. And lunchtime comes. Judge orders a break for lunch. My guy's case isn't even up yet, because there's a lot of other guys in the box too. And they take them back to a holding cell. The rest of us go out to lunch. So I'm walking out to my car to go get my lunch. And here comes the judge. Here comes my guy's lawyer. And here comes the prosecuting lawyer. They all get in the same car to go to lunch together. And they're laughing, and boy, you really did a good one in there, didn't you? You know, and just slapping each other on the back. This is the point that Paul is making with us here. You've got a dispute between two brothers or two sisters in Christ, and you're looking to a system where nobody wins to settle it. Surely you can do better than that. That's the whole point. It's folly is what he's saying. Surely you could do better than that to settle your disputes. Because here's the point. He's being sarcastic now. 
Paul sarcastically tells them that they do not have someone to settle their disputes. He says, surely, come on. Obviously, you don't have anybody in the church that is wise enough, mature enough to be able to handle stuff in the church. Disputes among brothers. And he's saying that sarcastically. Because surely there are people who are just as wise as the people we elect to settle those things within the church to be able to settle it. But the issue is, is do both people want to submit to the church to be able to settle that issue? And if they're Christians, they should be able to. And so, here's the thing. Look at the testimony. Look at verse 6. Here's what he says in verse 6. But brother goes against brother, and that before unbelievers. Here's the point. The testimony of this. Paul states that brothers are in conflict in the presence of unbelievers. Now, why is this such a big issue to Paul? Because remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, by this shall they know that you are my disciples, by what? Your love for one another. See, the greatest testimony that we have to a world that doesn't know Jesus is our what? Anybody? What's our greatest testimony? Love. I just told you that. Thanks, Bruce. Let's get some coffee brewing downstairs. Man, okay. Well, anyhow. If that's our greatest testimony, and then you've got two disputing with each other, and they go before unbelievers to settle it, what's that testimony? What's the testimony there? Is there a testimony there? Not a good one. It's not good. Boy, they really can't handle things over there, man. Look at that. You know, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. So now he rebukes them. Look at verse 7. He says this. Verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you to go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? So here's the point. The fact of their lawsuits gives testimony to their failure. You say, now what do you mean? I don't like what he said there. He said, why don't you guys rather just allow yourselves to be cheated? Why not allow yourselves to be wrong? That just kind of goes against the grain, doesn't it? Because, man, George, I'm an American. And I got my rights. How many times have you heard that one? And he's got to pay for what he's done to me. Now, the problem with that attitude, yes, that's the American attitude. Okay? That's the North American attitude. I've seen it in Canada, too. All right, here's the point. That's the North American attitude. All right, now I want you to understand something. That's not necessarily the biblical attitude. What did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? If someone strikes you, what? Give them the other cheek. Somebody wants your coat? Give them your coat. Now, is Jesus saying that you're to be a doormat? No, he's not saying that you need to be a doormat. But Jesus is trying to get you to grasp a greater point. See, when you're focused on what wrongs have been done to you and, you know, and all this stuff, and, and enough to take somebody to court over it, your focus has shifted onto who? On yourself. Rather than on a greater reality. What's the greater reality? Here's the greater reality, guys. The greater reality is this. Who's in control? 
God is in control. Who's the ultimate judge? Who will set things right, whether they're not set right or now or not? God will. And see, when we focus on ourselves about my hurt, they hurt me, they cheated me, he promised me ten pigs and only gave me nine. I want another pig. I'm thinking about an Adventures in Odyssey episode I heard, okay? You know, where the guy was upset for 90, 50 plus years over missing some pigs. So, anyhow, here's my point. The thing is, you are losing perspective that we're only, we're only here for a moment. And then I have a greater one. And what did Jesus say? What did God say? Vengeance is mine. And Paul is saying it's a failure that you guys are suing each other. It's a failure. I can't believe that you're doing it, he's saying to them. And here, here's the preferred thing. Paul asks why would why they would rather not be wrong than present such a testimony. Why, why wouldn't they just rather, rather than going and airing out dirty laundry and giving giving Jesus a bad name and giving themselves a bad name, would they rather not just accept it and leave it in God's hands and let him deal with it? You see what I'm saying? Why would they rather not just accept it and leave it in God's hands and let him deal with it? You want to know why? You want to know why we don't do that? I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. You want to know why we don't do that? Everybody want to know why we don't do that? Here's the reason why. Because we don't really believe it. Oh, we may believe it up here mentally. Oh yeah, Jesus is going to take care of it. He's supreme. He's going to judge all things. He's going to make it all right. But when it comes to rubber meets the road everyday life, we don't believe it here. Because it just eats at us, especially if somebody does this wrong, that... Come on, God, I thought you were going to do something. I noticed that they're still living the same way, still enjoying life. They don't even care. Doesn't seem fair, God. How many of you heard that one? We learned that early on, don't we? I've got some kids, and, I, and, I, and recently I've been talking with some of my young ones, and, and I hear this all the time. It's not fair! How many of you felt that with your children? It's not fair! Life's not fair. We don't know what God's doing in their life, and we don't know how God's going to use it in their life. We don't know what His ultimate purpose is. See, we don't... How many of us know the mind of God here? Nobody's raising their hand. Great. Wonderful. We don't know what God's going to do with it. But what we do is we turn inward and focus on what? Ourselves. And, boy, I can't believe... And, you know, and, and here's the thing, too. Especially... There's a great illustration of what I'm going to say tell you tell you here in a moment. It's in the book of Esther. And it's a guy named Haman. He's a pretty evil guy. And Haman is pretty pompous and arrogant. Everybody knows the story. And he wants everybody to bow down to him. But one guy won't bow down to him. And the one guy's name is Mordecai. And so he plots this whole plot to wipe out all the Jews and especially kill Mordecai. Now the problem with Haman is he's got a peanut gallery, so to speak, that's egging him on. 
Oh man, I can't believe that guy did that to you. He deserves to be punished. I mean, they're just egging him on in his feelings of hatred. And you say, well, I'm not a Haman. I'm not an evil guy like that. No, but some of you have peanut galleries. They're your closest friends who love you, but maybe aren't mature enough to realize that you're enslaving yourself. And here's what they say. I, you know, Rob, I can't believe that that neighbor of yours did that to you, man. I wouldn't put up with that. I wouldn't put up with that, Rob. So Rob goes to war against his neighbor, destroys that relationship as long as he's there, but he got right. The judge said, yes, you're right, Rob. But his neighbor, he don't talk anymore forever. Which would have been better? Before you answer that, think about who influences how you're going to answer. Say, what do you mean? The culture would say, go for it, Rob. Get all you can get. The Bible says, what's the greater testimony? And who's ultimately in control? It's just like what Bruce said. We don't know what God's doing. You know? I I was reading a book... I read a lot of, I read a lot, and maybe I heard it, but the guy was talking about that he went to visit somebody, and the guy had a brand new truck, and one big dent in the front fender. And he said, hey, what happened to your truck? He said, well, my neighbor's got this tree, I've been trying to get him to cut that tree down because it's rotten and it's dead. And here the other day, the wind blew and knocked a big branch off and put a big dent in my uh, fender. Was he going to do something about that? No, he isn't. Well, I wouldn't put up with that, this guy says to the friend. He said, well, my wife and I talked about it and we decided we're just going to let it go. Well, why would you do that? And here's what he said. We've lived next to him for a lot of years now, and we are gradually building a relationship. If I do that, for my, I'll never have the chance of sharing the gospel with him. He was concerned more about a relationship and growing than he was about his personal whatever. Now, let me just stop for a minute. That's an instance of an unbeliever and a believer. The whole point that Paul is saying here is, and he could bring it back to where I need you to see it, is that it's, it's better to be wrong than to affect your testimony, is what he's saying to them. Because you can, now here, let me just stop now. He's not saying to just drop it because he says they can settle it among themselves. Let's go on now. The reality of their actions. Paul states that they were actively engaged in wronging and cheating each other. See, here's the point. Paul wants to bring them back to reality and says, look guys, come on, you're upset about one guy wronging you, the fact of the matter is, is you guys do each other wrong. You do each other wrong. You cheat each other. So let's stop for a moment. Let's say, okay, here I am, it's me and Bruce. Bruce does something, and I get irritated with it, and and i got a legal basis. I can call 1-800-CALL-THAT-LAWYER. And the lawyer says, you got a case. And... 
for first of all, they don't say that to everybody who calls. They want to make sure because they, they they win when you win. So you got a case, and I take him to court. Okay, I take him to court. Here's what Paul is saying. You're getting irritated with that. How many people have you done something similar that Bruce has done to you? How many people, George, have you done that to? But they didn't take you to court. Maybe it wasn't the same thing, but maybe they had a reason to take you to court, but they didn't. Now, the American attitude is, is, well, that's their loss, my gain. But in this instance, I want vengeance, baby. Isn't that the thought? Paul says, the fact of the matter is, is we all do wrong. He's bringing it back down to the universality of the fact that we're all depraved. And we're all bent on sin. And that we would all do each other wrong. And so, and he's saying this to Christians who are suing each other. Now, he points out some things here just so you to realize that when you take it before unbelievers, you need to understand what you're taking it before. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Here's the point. Paul reminds them that unbelievers will not inherit the kingdom of God. You guys got to remember that now. If people don't know Jesus Christ, they have not come to Him and made a commitment to Him to follow Him. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bottom line point. And then here's the warning. He gives a warning here. Paul warns them about the reality of their spiritual condition. Look at what he says. He says, look, people who are practicing, he gives a whole list of sins there in verses 9 and 10, and he says that people who are practicing these kind of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the point. He's given them a warning. And so then he expands upon the reality. He presents ten forms of evil that are incompatible with the kingdom of God. Ten forms of evil that are incompatible with the kingdom of God. And then finally he wraps it up this way. He says this in verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. You know what? We need to be reminded of that sometimes because it's so easy for us as believers to assume a position of moral superiority over people where we look down our noses at other people because I can't believe they're doing that. Paul is reminding these Corinthian believers because these guys are struggling with pride and stuff. He's reminding them, you know, here's the thing. These people who are practicing these things are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he comes to verse 11 and he says, and such were some of you. He's bringing it back to reality. And here's what he says. Paul points out that they were once marked by these sins. They were once marked by these sins. And then, the next point he makes there, Paul states that they are now made new in Jesus Christ. See, it's because of Jesus, not because of who you are, where you came from, what your educational level is, what it isn't, what you did, what you didn't do. It's because of Jesus you've been made new. And that's the whole point he's making there. So he's saying, guys, you should be able to settle this on your own. So then now he gets to verses 12 through 20 and he discusses the issue of sexual matters. 
Look at what he says. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food for stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy both and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who has joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Please sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside of the body does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. For do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay, so we're going to go through these real quickly here so we can get through this lesson today. First of all, when he's talking about sexual issues, the Corinthians have come up with some justifications for their behavior because they were engaged in this. And you know what? Nothing has changed. I still hear the same justifications today. First one is the Corinthians felt that they had liberty or freedom in the area of sexual sin. It's like, you know what? I'm forgiven. Jesus forgives me. And specifically they're saying here, all things are lawful for me, I can do all things. I now have freedom in Jesus. And I've even heard it put this way. God put us together. And you hear stuff like that. And so Paul's saying to them that they felt that they had liberty. Now here's his response. Paul points out that while there is liberty, it is not necessarily beneficial. You may have a right to do things, but your right may actually hurt you. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? You may have a right. You may have liberty to go do things, but some things are not really okay. So, like for instance, it's okay for you to go and tie one on. What do I mean by that? It's, you could say, it's okay for me to just go and drink all I want to do, but you know what? It may not be beneficial for you. You'll destroy your body in the meantime. There are, there are a lot of different things. It's okay for you to smoke. But that's not beneficial. I mean, they're, they're, this is the thinking that they're saying. And Paul says, yeah, but you know, you may have liberty because you've got, quote, freedom. Now, he's going to blow away their liberty argument here in a moment. But the fact is, is not everything is beneficial. Here's the... Second justification, and this is the thing you hear on the news in our culture. The Corinthians felt that sex was just a natural response like eating food. Have you heard it? Look, the whole abstinence thing, that doesn't work because they're just going to do it. It's just natural, just like the animals. And guess what? They're acting like animals. And so here's what they're saying. They're saying... You know, Paul, that, that, you know, you're just getting a little too stodgy for us, buddy. We're just engaging in what comes natural. You know, just like when I want a cheeseburger, I'll go down to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger and satisfy that craving. If I want to have a fling, I'll just go have a fling and satisfy that craving. And that's what Paul is saying. No, I'm not going to do that. Some of you are like, ooh, no, I'm not going to do that, okay? All right? 
I'm not going to do that. But here's his response to that. Paul points out that our bodies belong to the Lord and we need Him. Look, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. Now, here's the evil of sexual sin. This is why you and I have got to grasp this. He gives this to us in verses 15 through 20. First of all, he has a question here. Paul makes the point that believers cannot engage in sexual sin without any effect. See, a lot of people today, especially our young people, think, especially because they view it as recreational sex. Now, you don't even have to have a relationship. You can just do it for the fun of it. And they don't think that there's any repercussions about it. No repercussions. But the fact is, Paul is saying, listen, I want you to understand the evil of sexual sin is that when you engage in it, you're going to have some sort of ramification in your life. It's going to affect you in some way. You cannot engage in this without having any kind of effect. You understand? All right, let's go on now. The reality. Here's what happens. When you engage in sexual sin, Paul is saying this. Do you not realize, this is what he's saying, the believer joins Christ in sexual sin. You're saying, now how does that happen? Here's how it happens. Let me just kind of guide you through this thinking of what Paul's saying here. When you become a Christian, what happens at that moment? Anybody? Sins are forgiven. Who enters into your life at that moment? Holy Spirit enters into your life. Does the Holy Spirit ever leave you? No, because the Bible describes Him as our guarantee, as the seal upon our lives that we belong to God. So whenever I engage in something, who's there with me? Where's the Holy Spirit? Within you, in your heart. So when you're engaging in sexual sin, Paul is saying, you are joining who to that sexual sin? Christ. Yeah. God. Isn't that, 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 that's, see, this is what he's trying to tell them. Come on, guys, wake up here. So he goes on then and he says this. Here's our spiritual link. Believers are spiritually linked or joined to Jesus Christ. You are spiritually linked. You are joined as a believer to Jesus Christ. So when, here's a side note, just real quick. Ever, ever make the statement, I just feel like God's not with me. You ever make those kind of statements? He just seems to be far from me. We usually say those things when we're in despair, right? Here's the problem with that statement. It's not theologically correct. Because if you know Jesus, he's with you. Period. Whether you feel him or not. So let's go on now. So he's saying to them, guys, you're spiritually linked. Now here's the point. He commands the believers to flee from sexual sin. Be like Joseph and run, baby. Get away from it because it's going to affect you. Why? Sexual sin is a personal sin against the believer. When you engage in sexual sin, Paul says the other sins are outside the body. This one is against you. It affects you. And I would dare say that it affects you not just spiritually, but I believe it will affect you physically. I'm not talking about just the whole sexually transmitted disease things, but have you ever met people? I, I, I you know, you know, every once in a while, you, you know, when I go home to South Carolina, I'll maybe meet somebody that I grew up with, and they just look old, older than they really should look. 
How many of you have met people like that? You meet them and you're like, man, they're looking old. Then you realize why they're looking old. What has aged them? Sin. Lifestyle choices. This is the point he's making here. Sexual sin is not just, oh, I'm just satisfying my body. It will affect you. It will affect you. Now let's go on now. Here's the nature of our bodies. The believer is the dwelling place of who? Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and says this. The believer's body is not their own. You don't belong to you. Somebody bought you. Who bought you? Jesus. So here's the exhortation. Finally, here's the exhortation. We are to glorify God with our bodies which were purchased with the price of Christ. You are to take your body then and glorify Jesus with it. There are ways to do that and we can talk about that, but I'm out of time. Here's the point. We have to take serious, what? Sexual sin. And listen, God's not a cosmic killjoy. Let me just make this comment real quick. God's not a cosmic killjoy just wanting to just really squash you from enjoying life. God realizes the repercussions of what will happen if you go down that road and He's trying to save you from the pain. He's trying to save you from the hurt. Trying to save you from the guilt and the shame. He's trying to save you. But we've got it all wrong because we're listening to what? Other voices. Just do it. But yet we see the destruction of it all around us, don't we? Okay, let's close our time in prayer.